Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Hey everyone, welcome back to yet another episode on the podcast. Um, this week's guest, we have none other than Mr. Steve Halleck of TikTokking.com um, or TikTokking on YouTube, um, which, you know, if you are a listener to the Waiting List podcast, I'm, you know, I'm sure that name probably isn't um, unfamiliar to you. And for the co-hosts, uh, I'm joined by Daniel today. Long Long sadly is not with us because she is currently in the Maldives or wherever she is, uh, and living the time of her life. So, um, but don't worry, we'll have equally as much fun without her. I'm sure it's her um, loss. And um, so we'll start off with the first question because I'm not going to take time to introduce Steve again. I'm sure you guys already know him. If you don't, like, do yourself a favor and check out his videos. Um, but we'll start off with the first question, which is, you know, Many of us who are familiar with you know you from your Instagram, um, your website, or your YouTube account, but I don't think you've ever talked much about your background story much, um, at least on social media. So could you give us a brief rundown of it? Sure. Thank you for the intro, and it's, it's fun to be here. I, uh, it's, we'll see if it's better or worse than being in the Maldives, but <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it'll be at least equal for right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I did a video once on because a lot of people used to ask me like, oh, how do I get into the watch industry or how did you get into the industry or something? And I did a video once and I put it up and then I think I took it down or made it private or it was just like uh, too much about me. And I like the stuff about my watches on the channel. But um, I have uh, I, I, I was in finance basically as a as a kid. I was always interested in finance and I worked, uh, you know, at like a family friend's office as a kid and went to school for finance and went into it for a few years. And this was um, in the sort of mid to late 90s and made a little bit of money, lost a, lost a little bit of money, you know, up, down, whatever. But, you know, I had enough money at some point to buy myself a watch. And I always really liked watches. My, my mom, my parents were divorced and I would go back and forth. My mom was really into jewelry. And so one of our like activities that we would do together is go to the local jewelry store and she would look at the jewelry and I would look at the watches. And so I, I had for, you know, since I was a little kid, ex exposure to watches in that way and always knew that I wanted a nice watch. So as soon as I made uh, any money, basically, I was like, I, I want to get myself a nice watch, which to me meant five grand, one watch, the thing that's just on my wrist for the rest of my life and I never take it off or whatever. Um, but I had the idea that there was probably something cooler than Rolex. Um, so I found the, the forums at the time were a really big deal, time zone and then the purists. Um, and I found these guys and I went like way down the rabbit hole. Um, and so that got me into indie watches and eventually I met Max Buser of MBNF and we became friends and he was just starting MBNF and he um, was telling me some challenges that he was having uh, in uh, North America and the US and he didn't really know how to get a footing here. 
And I said, you know, I'll just do it for you, basically. And so I, I started MBNF North America and kind of was the, was the everything for the brand here um, for several years. And then I, transi- I, I stopped doing that and started doing what I'm doing now, which is just buying and selling indie watches, which I had kind of been doing on the side for that entire time anyway, with my personal collection and just decided to make it a business. That's the short short run through. Okay, so I've got a question straight off the bat, which is, you know, independence, as you probably realize, have recently picked up and there's a lot of high interest in purchasing independent watches. Um, But you make a very good point in, you know, bringing awareness to independent brands to a new market such as the US. When an independent brand comes to like a, well, relatively mature, a mature watch market like the US, what is it that needs to be done to make a an independent brand have a chance to be successful? Yeah, um, that's what I had to try to figure out. Um, this was I started with Max in uh, it was either two thousand six or two thousand seven, and the watch world was just a totally totally different world. Um, the there was really no online media. There was just uh, there was magazines and there was uh, these couple forums. And that was basically the whole of the, the media world. Um, and there were no, nobody was like selling watches on their website or anything like that. The only really viable distribution method was, you know, going with these established brick and mortar retailers. Um, so it, it necessitated basically uh, making contacts with various retailers and uh, trying to get them to buy watches because we we wouldn't the really like crappy brands of the time they would just give people watches on consignment basically um yeah and uh but but the good brands and to get a retailer to really buy in and to get them to care about your brand you had to get them to to buy the watches so so that meant explaining it what selling them on it well enough that they would order i think we had at the time a minimum order of five watches because we also didn't want to just like somebody walk in and there's like one watch in a case that you don't get it and it doesn't look right. And, um, so it, it meant making all these contacts and figuring out who would well represent uh, our brand and also who was open to buying uh, five watches and, and paying up front and having to sell them. So that, that was the sort of one side of it. And then another side was the press and trying to make contacts with the press and trying to, you know, continue to get our story out there so that people knew who the heck we are um, so that we weren't totally reliant on a random guy walking into a random store and that salesperson uh, being able to tell the story well enough. Um, and then the, the, I guess the third part was like dealing directly with watch fans and customers and stuff like that. And that's the world that I had come from. So it was, that was the one that I was most comfortable with. Okay. So you know, I'm sure people know, right? MBNF watches aren't the most uh, affordable things. You know, they are pretty expensive watches. For, and I'm not saying, you know, expensive watches have always existed, but for a new brand coming into the market, how challenging was it to convince retailers to go with uh, MBNF? I know the product itself, you know, you look at it and a lot of, watch enthusiasts will just go wow you know that is amazing but you know from a business aspect i was wondering you know what was the initial 
like feeling amongst retailers with a brand like that? Yeah, it was it was hard. I mean, it also if you're if you're sort of doing the math in your head and you're thinking 2006, yeah. 2007, like what was going on in the world, I came on and then we immediately went into the global financial crisis. So yeah. it was a, an interesting period of time. And it, um, you know, the, the good thing with it is that we didn't want or need to open like a lot of retail doors. So, um, you know, this wasn't a brand that we were starting with the idea of selling 100,000 watches a year or something. We just were making, I think at the time it was about 120 pieces a year. Now maybe they're at 200 or something. Max never wanted to really grow that much. So it was, it was really about finding the right partners in the right areas. Um, and then most of those guys were like, they were the best retailers in the country and they were sort of used to this world anyway. So it wasn't, you didn't have to take them from like zero to a hundred. You just had to get them from like 60 to a hundred. Um, and uh, so the, the most frustrating thing was like the couple little stragglers that I knew we would be good for them and they would be good for us, but I still couldn't quite bring them along. Um, and that was mainly due to like macroeconomic issues and just the fact that the, the watch market in general was way less mature than it is today. And the, the product was harder to sell. I mean, you're looking at HM1, HM2, HM3, and HM4. And then mm. when, I, when I left, it was like right when LM1 was coming out. So they were like, these are very, very not easy to sell watches. You know, they're amazing watches, but they're not, you know, if, if a guy's walking into a store and doesn't know anything about MBNF, the odds that you're going to sell him one of these watches are like slim to none. So um, yeah, those were the challenges. And it, it was fun uh, because for me, I came at it like, I love this stuff. I don't need to do this. This is like something that I just think is fun. And I got into it because I love it. And so my sort of strategy was always, and that's still my strategy, like in my video, in everything, I just try to like talk about what I love and try to explain to people why I love it and try to convince them that I'm not an idiot and I have decently good taste and I've thought through all of this stuff and I've still come to this conclusion and try to like take them through the same path in some way so that they get it. And some people do and some people don't. And that's just kind of the way it goes. Mm. Okay. Like something you mentioned in your initial answer as well was, you know, obviously that you deal in independence now, but I think you are one of the first, if not the first that I'm aware of that was doing that. Like what did that experience with MBNF or what led you to that decision to think or see the opportunity that there is something in, in independence? You've already mentioned how difficult they are to sell, right? They're not yeah. for most people, to be honest, if you've not heard about that brand, it's a very slim chance you're going to purchase that brand, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, in life, wherever there's sort of difficulty, there's also opportunity in some sort of way. So I was, I never, I really didn't want to be a watch dealer. Um, I kind of have like a not good connotations to that in my mind. I'm like, I think highly of myself and of my <laughs> capabilities and that like just the idea of like, oh, just like a flipper, this, that, the other, it just never seemed like a good use of my time. Um, and, uh, but like I said, in, in my sort of little intro, I used to buy and sell this stuff on my own. I just love watches. And, and so as from when I got into them in, in like 2001 ish, 
all the way through 2012 or 13 is when I left working with Max. Um, all the way through that time, I can't afford to own all the watches that I want. And so, you know, like a lot of people, I buy what, what I really wanted, find it, wear it for a while, see something else that I really need, try to figure out how I can move things around and get it in some way and whatever. And, um, you know, I've been doing this a little bit my whole life when I was, you know, as a little kid, I was really into baseball cards and I knew what everything was worth and I would buy and sell and trade them. Even as like a seven-year-old, I'm on the phone with like, you know, big dealers across the whole country trying to offer trades. And it's just like a skill that I've sort of been using my whole life without ever knowing it. Um, so at some point I was, I had, I had stopped working with MBNF. I was doing some like real estate investing and stuff and my, my accountant and, and some consulting. I did some consulting in the watch industry as well. Um, my accountant was like, we got to talk about what you actually do because like, you have an, a consulting company in theory, but you know, like 60% of your income now is from this little like side you're buying and so like, what is this? And so that's when I was like, it hit me of like, okay, I've, I've basically, I also spent too much money on a car. I bought like a stupid car in a stupid deal. And I like the next day I woke up like, what the hell did I do? <laughs> I can't, I don't know if I can afford this stupid car. And I, uh, you know, I've made a big mistake. And then I like to kind of one of my successful things in life is if, if I have a problem, I try to solve it by like getting bigger than the problem instead of smaller. Like if I don't have enough money, I don't try to solve it by like saving money. I try to solve it by like make, making more money, you know? So I looked at this and I'm like, I've screwed up. I've taken on this, this uh, debt that I don't need, but now this is ridiculous. I should be able to make, so I, so basically that led me to being like, I'll just start this as a business and I'll see how it goes and I'll just do it in a fun way. I really didn't. So I didn't want to be the guy who was like grinding out 500 bucks on a Rolex or whatever. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I had, I had my own taste. I had my own history in this area and I was basically just going to buy what it is that I liked and tell people why I like it and hopefully, you know, sell it for more than that, and that there'd be some sort of business there. And it was almost instantly successful. So I never had to think about it that that much. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to take it back a lot, and then we'll move forward. Um, we briefly mentioned how, like, obviously, the watch community isn't like what it was when you kind of got into it, and you mentioned the participation with the forums and whatnot. And I just wanted to um, ask you to tell the story of how you and Max met because it was uh, a dinner that was like hosted through the forums, right? Yeah. And when you told yes. me that like in the intro call, I thought that was very fascinating. So I just wanted you to tell us again so the audience can hear it. Yeah, so, um, so the two main forums at the time were Time Zone. That was like huge, juggernaut, tons and tons of people. Like it had everything. And then the purists, which was a little bit more specialized. It was a little bit more of like a community and it happened to have a lot of focus on the independence. And so uh, it, it was by far the most important um, sort of launch pad for the independence at that time. But it was very, very small. I mean, compared to anything now, uh, it, it was tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, and so, uh, but it happened to be based in Los Angeles. So I moved to Los Angeles in I think 2003 and I had already been kind of on this forum and what and they they had an event 
I don't know what was the first one that I went to, but they would post, you know, we're having a get together. So I said, yeah, well, I moved to the city. I don't know anybody here. I like watches. I like these guys. I'm talking to them online all the time. I'll go and see what's up. So, um, so I started going to these events. Um, but for anybody who's been to an event recently, a watch event, watch events now are like cool. They're full of cool guys. Um, <laughs> I went to like a Hodinkee event a couple of years ago and it was like hundreds of guys that were all like kind of my age and like dressed super cool and drove there and they're like vintage Porsches and, uh, you know, probably had really cool jobs. They were probably writers and, um, actors and I don't know what they are. Well, in 2003 or four, it was literally me as like a 24 year old kid or whatever. And then like eight 65 year old doctors. <laughs> and that was it. And, and they would wear like Omegas or Patek Philippe's or, um, you know, whatever. None of them, I'm sure to this date, have ever bought like an Urwerk or an MBNF or something, but they were interested in, maybe they bought legacy machines. I shouldn't say that, but mm -hmm. not a, not a HM. Um, but they were interested and they liked watches and whatever. So I just got in with this group. They were really nice guys. They were really cool to me. Um, and so, uh, at, like I was saying, when you're starting a little independent brand and that third thing that I said is sort of reaching out to collectors directly. And, um, and so that's what Max was doing, basically. He didn't know anybody in LA per se. And so when he would come, he would reach out to the guys on the purists and he'd say, I'm coming. And they would arrange a dinner where he would get to meet collectors and collectors would get to meet him and we'd all have a nice dinner. And, you know, it wasn't even like, you know, nowadays you'll go to a, a brand dinner and they'll like rent out a huge thing and they'll, they'll pay for dinner. Well, like we'd pay for our dinners. It would be like, you know, it's a hundred bucks a person. We got a back room at some restaurant. We're all going there and we're, and Max Deucer is going to be there. And we're going to meet him. So, uh, so it was, it was a thing like that. We met there. Um, but he's, I think Max is um, maybe seven or eight years, maybe 10 years older than me. Um, but that means when you're, when you're 36, 35 and I'm 25 and everybody else is 65, mm. um, it puts us, way more as peers than anybody else. And we had way more of the same interests. And, uh, and so we just hit it off in it. And, and I don't think there was anybody else in the world that he would meet at any of these dinners that was like me at that time. There were just like no young guys in this area at all. Um, so I, I guess I sort of stuck out a little bit and we ended up, you know, just hitting it off and staying in touch. Yeah. I mean, mm. you were one of the core founding members of not just MBNF, but then MBNF USA, right? And you were there until 20, 2012? I think it was 12 or 13. I, I have to look back. Yeah. Right. So you were there for how many years? Seven, six, seven It was years? like five or six. Yeah. Oh, five or six. So during that time, um, like if you were to look back, like what would you say were some of the most challenging things that you had to do because it's almost like working at a startup, right? You probably had to yeah, do it was a total startup, everything for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean like the job that I was doing then there's now like, you know, five people that have that job or something. It's like, you know, the, the sales director and the PR director and who knows what we, we were just kind of winging it and figuring it all out. Um, and I, I would say it was just, I, the hardest thing is just that it was harder than I thought that it was going to be. And so I, I sort of thought we'd show up and have instant success. And 
And then again, I, I, I do think that the, the financial crisis, you know, it just like immediately upped the degree of difficulty. Um, so um, you had to buy your own watch. There was no watch to show. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was funny. So even when, when Max was like, look, I don't know what I'm doing in North America. There's, I don't know the retailers, I, the press won't give me the time of day. And when I said, you know, I'll do it. He was like, oh, well, he's like, you don't want to do that. You don't want to deal with these assholes. It's specifically what he said. And I was like, no, I'll do it. It sounds fun. I, I really like what you're doing. And he's like, okay, well then the next problem is I can't pay you. So I was like, okay, well, we'll figure it out. You know, I'll, we'll, we'll be successful and then there'll be money and that, that'll work out. And then he's like, okay, well then the next problem is I literally can't even afford to like give you like a watch to show people. So I was like, okay, I'll buy a watch. So I bought an HM2 um, and uh, that that's what I showed people to start with, to just explain to them what MBNF was. So yeah, I had to, I had to buy the showpiece. Wow. Where, where'd you find the, uh, you know, employees like you? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Right, fantastic. But again, I want to just take it back a little bit where you said when you were in the game, you know, you were going into a back room of a restaurant with like lawyers or like an old 65 year old doctors or something like that. You're painting a specific image out. Um, and then how you went to a Hadinki event and, you know, people rolling up in their vintage Porsches. It was a cool thing. What happened? What, how did, what happened that made watches cool? And, and by the way, you know, when we talk about, uh, yeah, the global financial crisis, you know, 2010, I think, was when Hadinki also, you know, got launched. And, you know, we, we obviously know what happened there. Um, yeah, but what happened? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I'm sure Hadinki has a big part of it. You know, they just tapped into this huge audience that was just waiting to, it was just there and nobody knew it was there and nobody reached it in the right way you know it's like drilling for oil and you just somehow hit it and it you got a gusher of a well and they they got there somehow you know ben did such a good job with all of that um and uh you know it just an interesting thing that i've noticed um my, my wife is a painter she's a really really good really successful painter her name's vanessa prager anybody wants to look her look her up but she uh so to me like fine art is like the most interesting thing. If I ever sat down at a dinner party and somebody was like a successful artist, I'd be like really, really curious and impressed. And, um, but for years and years, we've gone out places and we don't know anybody. People ask us what we do. We both tell them. And people are really interested in watches. Really everywhere, every person, everybody's got something to do with watches. People are just really drawn to watches. Um, and so I do think that that, that underlying interest always was there and just needed to be tapped into in the right way. And, and so it was in there with cool people. And then, and then I think there, there probably was something in the, the sort of to coming out of the global financial crisis where the younger people started making money, like the next generation came up and you had all of web 2.0 and people getting kind of money out of that. And, um, the I don't know that next generation having the buying power to participate in all of this and then the internet reaching maturity or you know whatever level of maturity it did and kind of all of those things swirled together to create this exponential um, jump but uh, so I think it's monocausal um, 
and some people were uh, better at exploiting it than than others. But it's certainly it, whatever happened, it is night and day difference, and it will never go back to. That. I mean, it was like if you go, probably if you went to like a meetup of like pocket watch collectors or something now, that's what it was like going to like a wristwatch thing twenty years ago. So you don't think pocket watches are likely going to become what wristwatches are today? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I think it's it's more likely that wristwatches become what pocket watches are. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I don't I don't think either will happen. It's just to say it was a very like niche, like crazy nerdy thing, and, and it is obviously not that way right now. Although we're all like nerds compared to the rest of the world, we have more <laughs> more nerd compatriots at the moment than we used to. Mm, I mm-hmm. think what Hodinkee did really well is incorporate watches with lifestyle and it, it kind mm. of expanded beyond this geeky, nerdy little niche. And I agree with you. I don't think it's going back anytime soon. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they had a, like a whole aesthetic too. It yeah. just was like very much of the time. And mm-hmm. that had never really been done in the watch world. It was like, mm-hmm. if you looked at, the watch magazines and stuff like that. They, de- they didn't really focus on aesthetics at all. They didn't focus on fashion. They didn't focus on connections to the rest of the world. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that like, if you, if you see a bunch of Hodinkee guys, they all look like Ben, you know? They're, mm-hmm. they're, it's that style, it's like that kind of a thing. And it's not, um, it, it was just all there. It just had to be brought together. And they mm. did it in the, the this kind of amazing way. And mm. it all became its own pieces of the lifestyle that worked well. Um, so I, I understand why that draws its like detractors and stuff too, for people who think that it, you know, get uh, reflexively like turned off mm. by kind of like a group horde of a thing. But I don't think it was, um, I think it was totally organic. I think it was just the kind of aesthetic of the time that occurred just like, you know, grunge kids were in the 90s or something there was just like this group of people that all had this sort of same references same interests um and watches just slid perfectly into that group and uh it became became what it became and luckily the independents were a part of that because ben was really interested in the indies so um you right, know it was uh, the first like collaboration a, yes yeah yeah, we did our our um, our MBNF was the first you know the first big watch that sold um, through that website that the LM101 Hodinkee. Mm-hmm. So that's like a super historical piece. Um, and I had done actually a giveaway of one of my of a personal uh, Tissot idea um, 2001 that I uh, gave away on the set. We did a lot of supporting of them mm-hmm. early, and he was really supportive of us. And it was like I, it would have been a totally different historical trajectory for the indies i think if that property had taken off how it did without people who also knew and understood and were interested in the indie world we could have missed the whole thing basically mm. yeah. yeah daniel i think he definitely presented the uh, package the whole watch enthusiast hobby very professionally and very in a way that was very accessible and i think you know when you say about mbns collaboration with dinky i think mbnf last time i spoke to max it he doesn't like doing the collaborations. So it 
it's a very you know relatively rare thing for MBNF, I think, to do, especially the amount of pieces he did for Hadinki at the time. Uh, maybe that had something to do with um, you know the timing of that whole collab. But my question was, you know, you mentioned how you know there was money coming in from people that had you know been successful with Web 2.0. Are you finding that there's a new you know group of people? that have made their wealth through Web 3.0, you know, cryptocurrency and all, all this kind of blockchain and Bitcoin that are now coming into the game? You know, it's funny because I'm a, I'm a big Bitcoin guy and I have been for a long time. Um, and I, I have for a while offered to accept or buy um, in Bitcoin. I'm sort of a, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist sort of, so I don't really mess with the other stuff. But, um, but I, I'm really into it personally and I'm open to it, um, but not... I haven't actually seen a lot of it in my circles. Um, so I, I think that people are interested. They certainly pay attention. Maybe they're, maybe they're investing or buying or doing something in it in their own ways. But my customers, for the most part, are not like vocal crypto people. I don't have like the crypto bro customers. I wish I did. It, it's probably a good place to be. And I'd love to do more transactions in Bitcoin. It's amazing to buy a watch in Bitcoin or sell a watch, like just like, you know, we'll do the deal on a Sunday and still the money can just be transferred and finalized and it's, you know, 10 minutes and done. And uh, it's a really cool, cool way to do it. But no, I, I don't personally see it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist because whenever anything new comes, it comes to Rolex and Paddock and AP and whatever first. So the guys that deal in that stuff, I'm sure see it much more. Um, but that, that's my, I, I do do some transacting, but not like a huge amount. What about like, if we talk, we're talking about like groups of people that are buying independent watches. Have you seen any transitions or trends happening in the last, you know, 10 years where, you know, your initial market and the consumer was here? And obviously I know you've expanded and your reach has expanded, but have you noticed anything like, let's say Asia, uh, yeah. the interest picking up? Yeah, it, it, it tends to shift as sort of global economic reality shift. So I, um, also there's, there's always a problem with shipping and stuff like that, you know, international tariffs and duties and those sorts of things. So it, it still leaves the US is the best place because it's the easiest place. Mm. Um, but Hong Kong, um, Hong, Hong Kong and Singapore, I did a lot of business with um, a few years ago and I'm doing less there now. I don't know why. Maybe that's in my reverso round. I'll I'll throw that to you, to you guys to figure out why that may be. Um, but be I went through. I <laughs> yeah, I went through a period where I was always U.S. was my biggest market, but I was doing a lot of business um, in Hong Kong and and in Singapore, and I was traveling there a decent bit to to do deals and stuff like that. And then now I I most of that has dried up, and I'm like very strongly uh american at this point well i can think of a, po a plausible reason for hong kong it's because like the recent years with all the protests happening and and the political um uprises and also obviously covid um i'm not sure about singapore because from what i see on instagram there's seems to be a very vibrant community of independent um watch collectors in singapore yeah but they don't seem to be secondary mark. Like they're 
there's a lot less secondary market activity for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're also not selling watches. So it could have something to do even with just like watch box opening offices over there. And maybe mm -hmm. they're just doing the business that I used to do or, um, you know, who knows? I don't know. I don't know what's occurring, but for some reason, those watches, I know that there's a lot of collectors there and there's a lot of interest and it's all happening there still, but those watches aren't coming to me for whatever reason. It could also be the fact that, you know, with, with accessibility, a lot of collectors are doing collector to collector trades directly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Without having That's to an find interesting. Someone like yeah. you, because the collector groups now in Hong Kong are very mature. Like we just know a lot of people, you know, and with, with, with the dynamics of independent brands is you've got to be really into it. Basically, I'm not saying you always have to be, but the likelihood is you are. Yeah. And so you're likely to have other people that are watch friends and you just say the word out. I'm looking to, to shift this piece on and you might be able to just, yeah, shift it on. Right. Yeah. yeah that's a really smart point. I think that's probably um, pretty true. And it's uh, I always knew that this business like kind of has a shelf life to it. Like uh, eventually everything's going to collapse down and there's no, you know, my, and it already is happening, you know, my usefulness and, and my value add is just less as time goes on and people are more connected. It used to be my customers were my customers. Um, but now most of my customers are on Instagram, which means that they're following, um, you know, other watch companies and stuff like that and, and being refollowed. And, and so everybody kind of knows that you can't keep anything in its own sandbox. Um, and so of course that, drives down margins for people like me and it makes, you know, it harder to buy and stuff like that. And then as, as you said earlier on in this discussion, there's a lot more interest in Indies now, which means there's more liquidity, which means, you know, as you said, I was one of the, the only guys buying and selling Indie stuff. Well, no, there's a lot of guys that'll, but you know, I, I did so much Jorn business uh, for years. Nobody else wanted to buy Jorns. Um, but now I, I, I haven't even bought a Jorn in years because everybody else wants to buy them and they want to pay a lot more money than I want to pay. So it's just, that's just kind of how the way it goes. And I don't really sweat it much. It, it is what it is. I don't think you need to sweat it. Um, I think we had this conversation earlier on, which is, I mean, I started watching your videos from Akari uh, Retrograde. I think that was the first video I ever watched from you. And then I kind of binge watched all the other ones. And obviously you did a lot of Jorns and Grupo Forces and whatnot. And I remember saying, you know, if you listen closely, if an audience member listens closely or a client um, to what you were saying 10 years ago about the differentiation of earlier dials and their desirability, I'm talking about Jorns, like the mirror-like finish and Back then, nobody were paying more or a premium for those. And then you fast forward 10 years to now, and you see the same model um, with different dials. The mirror-like finish trades for, I don't know, like 200K premium or 100K premium than the normal one. Then you really start picking up how just how important and um, rare uh, someone is willing to, you know, share this kind of knowledge. And obviously you didn't know what you were sharing because you were just like, okay, I buy what I like, right? It's what speaks to me and I'm sharing it to everyone else who's watching this channel. I think that's really valuable. So um, 
yeah, we have this, you know, as the community is more accessible and whatnot, but I think um, it's rare to, to know someone who actually like appreciates the minute details and, you know, discerns the differences. So, um, I mean, I, I learn a lot from, from watching your videos for sure. Um, that's why I think you should, you should post more. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's a very generous and kind. I, I definitely, um, you know, I always wanted to educate people. That's, that's how I thought that this, you know, how I could justify doing this job and having it not be a waste of time, basically, is that um, I'm not, I, I don't really love luxury. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I struggle a little bit with the justifications of some luxury in general. And, uh, and, and so for me, there is actually like a moral component to like, if you're going to get really into like these material things and spend a ton of money and whatever, then it's really important to support good things with that money um, and with that time and with that attention. And I really think that, um, you know, if you notice, yes, I sell indie watches, right? But I probably sell like 10 brands mostly. Mm. Like, it's not like every indie watch, you know, I'm, I'm pretty specific. And the brands that I think are good, I think are doing the most important stuff that is in the watch industry. And it's keeping a lot of trades alive. Um, and, and it's people that are searching for a level of quality and expression and things that I think are really important to have in the world. We, we want stuff like this to exist. And the only way to have it exist is to support it. Um, and so, uh, so I do feel like a little bit of a moral crusade to get people um, to think about buying an MBNF or an Urwerk or a Grubel Forsey or a Debethune or something versus, um, you know, a, a Louis Vuitton or like a, I don't know, I don't know what the, what it would be. And, and most people never will, obviously it's, that's not what, but, but if you can get a few people at the margins, then it's, then it's important. And uh, no, I never th thought also that things would blow up quite this much. Like the, the mm -hmm. video that you're talking about where I'm trying to show like a, a really good shiny dial. If you guys go back and look at that, it's a, it's a platinum with a white gold dial really, really early Jorn Tourbillon. And I, I think I sold that watch for $68,000, which would have been, it was the same price as any other Jorn Tourbillon at the time. As you're saying, they were all the same. And I was trying to use this watch to show people what they should look for in a good one. Cause it's like, if you're going to buy one, you may as well buy a good one. Mm. And uh, you know, if I had that watch today, I wouldn't sell it for less than probably $2 million. Mm. Um, but I never would have guessed, I never would have guessed that even at like, you know, at a, when they were around 120, I was like, well, this is the very, very top. Like, mm. this is insane. I got to sell out of these sorts of things. So I, I'm not, uh, you know, unfortunately, my business is about buying and selling and not like speculating. Mm. Um, so if it was, I would have just filled my safe with these things and I'd be like 20 times richer than I am. Um, but, you know, I saw so I made six grand on that watch and the owner made uh, two million dollars on that watch. But... <laughs> What are you going to say? Mm. Yeah. We're throwing out like a lot of very attractive brands, you know, DB, Grubel 4C, MBNF. Um, but, you know, having dealt these watches um, for so long, which ones do you like? Yeah. So that's what I like. I mean, literally, I just sell what I like. And I, uh, that's how I sort of stay sane in all of this. So, 
Um, so my kind of idea was, I, I think also one really important thing about um, watch collecting and having it be a sort of justifiable pursuit is using it to um, hone one's own taste. I think that's like an important part of it. Um, and so I try not to tell people like, uh, you know, I, I try to thread the needle between uh, or toe the line between um, these are the brands that I think are really good. And this is the stuff that I think is really good. And like the, the, the type of stuff that I think you should look at, but not go so far as to say like, this is the watch that you should buy. Um, because I mm. think the, the jump from one to the other is personal taste. And yeah. that um, a lot of the value of the, the doingness of the collecting is in that jump. Um, so I try to, yeah, I'll focus on, so like, yeah, every Debethune may not be my, the one that I would personally buy if I was buying one Debethune, but I think Debethune is amazing. So I'll buy any Debethune and I'll sell any Debethune and I'll tell you why it's great and whatever. Um, so I kind of have, that's kind of how I categorize it and stuff. But if you look at, for the most part, if you go on my site, I, I keep up every watch that I've even sold. If you look at, you know, anything that's made it there, sometimes things sell before they hit the site, but um, that's the stuff I like. If I had all the money in the world, I would have kept every one of those watches and never sold anything. And I, you know, just play by my pool and look at my watch collection. But that's absolutely the stuff that I really love. Hmm. And what about, what about, what are you looking to acquire like yourself going forward? Are there any pieces that you think, oh, like for me, I really want that Recepi. <laughs> I'm not going to get it, but I really want one. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've gotten, I, I was telling Jack in, uh, in our sort of pre-interview, I've gone like a little bit weird personally right now. It's like uh, the Indies used to be my little sandbox that nobody really came in. And so that uh, I, I'm a contrarian basically by nature and in most of my life. And so that's probably some reason why I like the Indies and like to not buy what people are really into. But unfortunately, everybody wants all the indie stuff now too. Mm -hmm. So now I've just started looking at like really weird older stuff that like people just didn't want or don't want anymore. Um, so like if you go back through my Instagram, you can see like a, a Frank Muller minute repeater tourbillon that I just bought recently for myself and uh, this IWC Da Vinci uh, perpetual tourbillon chronograph. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like just these weird things that are like, if a company made them right now, they'd be like 200 or 400 grand or something like that. And you can buy them for 30, 40, 50, 60, and no, nobody else wants them. And um, that's kind of what I'm into right now is figuring out what everybody's missed out on and, yeah. or what they're too scared to buy um, mm. and sort of like filling my watch box with that. Maybe this time stock them and just keep them in the safe and then maybe be 20 well, times yeah. richer. <laughs> yeah, Speculate I'm this like time. Too, too stupid to do those sorts of things or like too trigger, trigger happy. And also it's just like, I just can't wrap my mind around it. Like I sort of thought I was doing that sometimes and still I would sell just so far too. Like I literally thought I was doing that with Sean. I'm like, okay, good. This time I'll keep three of them and I'll make an extra $10,000 on each of them. And then like, of course they go, they all like quintuple or sex, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> Who could guess these things? Who knows? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. 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 Then I have like, like the uh, Grubel 4C Invention piece one. I think it's like the greatest modern watch. It's like, a, like you couldn't make, I couldn't make a list of the top five best watches the last 15 or 20 years without including that one. And yet, and so I have one in my personal collection, which would be like, um, to me, it should be three times more expensive than it is. And it's just not. 
I put it up on my site just to see if anybody was interested. Um, and they're not, you know, I put it up really high. And uh, so I, I just never know, like the stuff that I think should be really expensive isn't, uh, it's an expensive watch, but, um, and the stuff that I didn't know, is, I, it's not what I'm good at, I guess. I just know what's good and what's not good. Okay. While we're talking about that, because you kind of read my mind, I was just going to mention Grupo Force. Um, you and I had a very fun text exchange when I went to my local watch shop and <laughs> I was just looking around and then they pulled out from the safe two Grupo Forces that they said they've had in their safe for seven, eight years. And so what's the first thing I do? I take a photo and I send them to you <laughs> because um, one was the, one was a GMT and then I forget what the other one was. Um, and it was so funny because I was asking the salesperson, I was like, oh, do you know, uh, how did you get this piece? Like, do you know how it works or how to operate it? And obviously they don't. So they're like, do you? And obviously I do because I watched your video <laughs> and <laughs> I was, um, showing them how to tell the the different uh city time zones if you look at the back with the black and silver and also if you want to like stay where you are but then move the time you press on the button and then you adjust the time then the thing the 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 time stays or, or the globe stays and then you just adjust the time and they were like how did you like how do you even know this and then in my mind i was just like well how do you not because it's yeah. your watch right and then we had this conversation uh I, I was telling you you know they're selling them at massive massive discounts and then you're like it doesn't matter what price they're selling at if they don't know how to sell it it doesn't matter the price yeah. so my question is um first of all like how do you because you've reviewed so many group of forces right and have had and handled them like what is the utmost like quality or the thing that you focus on where you want your client to understand when it comes to a brand like Grupo Forsi? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I, mean, I have a slight digression and I'm, I'm wondering if I should do it before or after I answer your question, but sure. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it before a little bit. Um, so back to MBNF North America, um, one of my jobs was to train salespeople. So it's first I had to, you know, talk to the owners of the stores and, and get them to buy the watches and buy some inventory and get them there. So that's like how this store ended up with the Google Forces. Um, but then I'd go a couple times a year and I'd fly around the country and I'd go to every store and I'd go actually train them on the watches. Um, and the reality is that um, in most retail stores, there's like one salesperson that will be like a fan of that brand, right? That's, that's sort of the best you're going to do for these little brands is you hope to find the one salesperson who's really interested in that stuff because it's kind of hard for them, right? It's like what they want to do is just sell the watch that everybody walks into the door wanting. So it's really easy if you walked into that store and you're just like, I want a Rolex. And they're like, okay, good. Here's the Rolex. Well, mm -hmm. of course, now they don't have any stock of that stuff anyway. So it's all coming, coming <laughs> back to hurt them now um but but at that time it's just like good they want to sell anything that anybody already knows and is just asking for they're not really like you know sales is actually a skill people don't realize that it is and some people are really good at it and some people are not good at it and some people are kind of in between and it takes a lot of time and energy and, and whatever and so um 
most people will go for the easiest possible thing, but you'll find the one person who's really into it and hopefully can explain enough about them. And hopefully you would think that they're so interested, they might go home and watch some of my videos or do whatever, mm -hmm. although they never, you know, they're, they're unlikely to do that. Um, anyway, that, that's sort of the process to try to keep from having that happen in stores. Um, and then also as a brand, you know, if I were consulting with Grubel Force or if I worked for them in some way, I would suggest that they talk to that retail store and they try to trade out that inventory for something newer. Um, mm. Because obviously those salespeople are going to be demoralized with the few dog watches that they haven't been able to sell forever, even though that's a great model. I don't know why they couldn't sell it, but no. um, but whatever, if they're going to be a re if they can't sell the watches, better to close them as a door and buy back the inventory. And if they can sell them and there's somebody there that you feel comfortable with, then uh, you know, better to, you know, uh, take the watches back, credit them towards new stuff. But if they buy like double or something like that, and mm -hmm. that's a good way to just get like new watches, the new hot stuff in the showcase, you want your retail partners to succeed in selling stuff. It doesn't, it, it just is bad for everybody to have dead watches in a showcase. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that's what it made. That's all the things like I'm thinking in my head when you sent me those pictures and told me those things. Um, but the answer to your question is that um, I think it's, a, it's important for each brand to know what it is that makes them special and what their kind of value proposition is. Um, and so for Drupal 4C, they're all about finishing. Um, and so, and, and I think it's important to understand what that even means to know why they're great. So um, there's one, there, there's lots of different ways that you can finish a metal part. Um, and the thing about, uh, and so it, it's, it's, it's X level of easy to finish a thing one way. And then it's maybe like X squared level of easy to be able to finish multiple things in multiple ways. And then it's like X to the 18th uh, level of difficulty to be able to finish like all the things in all the ways and to be able to plan the finishing next to each other. So that's where Grubel really excels is that everything is perfect. And not only is everything perfect, it's not perfect in the same way. They, they deliberately think out the way that the finishes are next to each other and, and put through each other. So that becomes part of the art of the watch itself. Um, and so it's not about just getting like a perfect bevel polish or a perfect unglage, a perfect, you know, Geneva stripes or something like that. It's literally like integrated into the watch itself, um, all of these things. And it just makes it exponentially more difficult and uh, unfortunately exponentially more expensive. Mm. Um, but you have to understand that to understand why that Grubel Forcey in the showcase is $600,000. You know, I once mm. talked to a, um, an independent watchmaker that we all like, but I won't mention who it is. Um, and he makes really good stuff and he made a watch and uh, he was saying, you know, then the last thing I had to decide when I was coming up with this watch is like what level of finish to take it to because uh, the watch ended up retailing at around $120,000 or something like that. And he's like, I could basically, so I decided to get there because that's where everything looked really great. Um, and to take it, you know, the next level further, which would be basically Grubel level, all of a sudden he'd have to be selling that watch for $650,000. So that's just like the economics of doing it that way. Grubel is the 
excuse me, decided to be like maniacal about it and do that, even though it makes almost no sense in the world. And some people resonate with that, but it's also totally acceptable to say like, well, what if we just bump that down one level and then just pay 120 grand for mm -hmm. the watch, you know? Um, but then it's like, okay, so you look at that brand and you say, well, what's cool about that? And what's the reason for that? And what are all the decisions about that? So that, that's kind of the way that I look at these brands, look at the value propositions of the watches. Why is it the way that it is? Why does it cost like that? You know, whatever. Mm. Yeah. In, re in response to your answer, you know, it'd be interesting to see as these independent brands are trading for like two, three X, you know, John's five X whether that then people consumers think Do you know what it is actually worth spending 600,000 on a watch because you know what these jaunts that I can't get anyway are 2 million you know yeah and then there I is a, think that a that's increased market happen. right that's like 100% the way that I think is like oh if a Jorn Turbion that yeah. was 60 grand is now 600 well I'd rather just have the Grubel that actually like was worth yeah. 600 to start with or something but I'm an, I'm apparently like an idiot for thinking like that because people just don't think like that in the world. I mean, I made the same mistake with early Richard Meals forever. RM2s, RM3s, RM4s. I'm like, these have to be, if people are paying $300,000 for an RM11, how could they not pay $300,000 for an early Richard Meals Turbion or whatever? But the fact is like the real buyers in the market, which aren't my customers even, I don't even know these people, but they're the people who move the market. They don't think like this. They just want what they want and they'll pay what they pay. And it's like totally irrational. And it is much more of like a mob mentality than it is anything that makes sense. Um, yeah, I agree. So I think like to, to get the market to move, you need the herd. And yeah, uh, I think the herd don't think like us. It's not like they don't think like it. They don't think like us now. Right. And then there might be a delayed effect. I mean, yeah. like you say, FP Jones. They got the, the the fire has to be lit somehow, right? And then usually it's people like me and you that you know appreciate this stuff. I'm not saying those people don't, but you know we're really onto it very quickly. And then the herd come in, and that's what boof, pumps up their price. You know, and yeah. there's also market tricks as well. But suddenly that that it's gone, and I think a lot of these things aren't brought to light enough. It's more it's easier now through through social media, but you know during your time it's very difficult to. To, to sell, to even highlight the selling points of the watch really quickly as it is now with social media. Yeah, it's really hard. And, and also most people want to buy a thing that, um, you know, that everybody likes. They, mm. Most people don't have the courage to buy a watch that nobody knows what it is and it looks weird. And it's like, you know, nobody would ever think that it's expensive. And, you know, kind of all the reasons that I like them most people don't like them for that. And that's just the reality of the world. And it's never going to change. That's just the way it is. People want to feel secure in their purchase. And the way that people feel secure in stuff like that is to buy things that other people have already validated and are already kind of want. And, and that's, that's just the way it works, basically. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's a huge well of uh, very confident customers that will just go out on a limb and buy any new thing those people are very rare and mm -hmm. uh, so they have to be they have to be talked to in their own way and sold to in their own way and they should be well respected and they those are like a, a brand's best friend but uh, they're very hard to find 
I think it's always exciting when you stumble upon an Instagram account um, that you've you know never seen before, and then you click into the profile, and the collector um, collects. It's like it's. I think it's not difficult to see when someone is buying out of um, their own taste or following a herd. Yeah, at least sure. not anymore with social media. Um, so I think, and it takes courage, and it definitely takes a lot of knowledge about yourself and 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 confidence. So. Um, and I, I agree with what Steve's saying about the external validation, right? I think it's gone in a weird way now where people are saying, Do you know what? If you've got it, it's not cool. <laughs> I want something now, which nobody has, right? Yeah. And that's really cool. And I get my validation. That's yeah. a higher level of validation than right. having something that everybody knows is knows yeah. expensive. Hang on. You don't even know about this? Oh, my God. Yeah. I've just reached the top echelon there. Yeah. Oh, that is a funny point. And I see that because basically everything I sell is so rare. It's like, you're never, ever going to see one in the world. And sometimes I'll have, you know, I'll have the, the white gold dial, um, LM 101 or something that there's like 30 of. And somebody would be like, no, 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 I don't want that. I need the, I need the other one that there's 10 of or something. They're like, dude, there's 8 billion people on the planet. It makes no difference that there's 30 of one and 10 of the other. These are the most insanely rare things that they are. But you're right. People can really talk themselves into um, needing to be the, you know, they get, they have to be mm-hmm. the piece unique. They have to be the limited edition. They have to be the whatever. When the reality is that all of this stuff is so insanely rare that uh, it, it's rarefied error. But the internet makes it look like it's everywhere. You see, yeah, you see, yeah. yeah. Maybe there's maybe only ten of them exist. But if five of them are like <laughs> usual posters on Instagram. Then it looks like there's a uh, hundred thousand of them, so mm. it's a weird, it's a weird time for that. Now, I'm, I'm also interested to see how independent brands right now fulfill the demand that they've been, you know, that have been placed upon them to deliver these pieces now, because you know this is a time of independence, like a golden age of independence, where you know, for the first time, they almost don't have to beg, <laughs> you know, yeah. like the clients are coming up to them begging to pieces, but how many of those clients? have the staying power to wait three, four, five years for the piece to arrive. You know, like if you can't provide, I mean, that in itself is a service, right? Like how fast can you deliver the piece? If you can't provide the service, is it that those, those clients, you know, it's pretty hard to wait, isn't it? Like, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really into this kind of stuff and I'm finding it difficult, you know? year or two i'll post on instagram the screenshot of of my email uh canceling my original simplicity order because i was too impatient to wait for it it was forty five thousand swiss francs um for my own uh one of the you know two 200 simplicities so i'm not a waiter i i can't wait for anything um and i i think that's a smart point that you've hit upon and i hope that well, I hope that they all play it well. You know, I hope that none of them get like too far uh, ahead of their skis and expand so much that if there is some sort of drop in demand that they don't end up having problems. Um, but so far from what I've seen, everybody's doing a really good job with it. And, um, you know, I think playing it very smartly. But it, yeah, this is a, a good time. I hope they all feel good. It's nice to sell your order book. All the things I was saying were frustrating when I was doing this uh, with Max and whatever, this is when all, you know, you can finally let 
let your breath out and say, ah, oh, you know, we don't have to deal with that stuff uh, anymore. Um, but recognize that everything kind of comes and goes as it goes. Yeah, gotta, yeah, don't get too high. Don't get too low. Just keep going. Yeah, don't forget many, your retailers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How many pieces does MBNF produce a year now? I mean, Max is pretty open about production stuff, so I'm sure he would answer that question. I don't want to answer it because I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm mm. sure it's not more than 250 or so. Mm. Yeah. I would guess it's less than that. I think he's made a smart move as well with the, the um, yeah, the mad, you know, like yeah. leveraging off the brand, accessing a group of people that obviously would love to be associated with the MBNF brand and made it really affordable, but then also made a piece that is, you know, true to the brand. You know, it isn't just like a three-hander or something, you know, that isn't yeah. consistent with the brand, you know. Yeah. Well, if I can sing Max's praises for a minute on this podcast, he's... Um, I learned so much from Max and he's like, he's a real genius and a really special guy. And what he does is I don't think people fully realize who Max is or what his skills are, or, you know, um, most independent brands are run by like a watchmaker or something. Um, Max, Max could be the CEO of any fortune 500 company. He could be the CEO of any company in the watch industry and he'd be better than basically all of them save maybe like a beaver or something, but he's at that, le he's that level of a guy who just happens to find it fun and challenging to run one of these little indie brands. So the things that he's able to pull off, nobody else could pull this stuff off in, in, in the little indie industry, nor do they want to. Mm. Um, but just the, you know, all the new calibers that he comes up with and the mad galleries and the mad one and the, you know, keeping you know, from the beginning, He's never shown a watch that he's not like ready to deliver and everything's worked. Everything's come out on time. He's making, he's revolutionizing like the chronograph and the perpetual calendar and all that. Not that he's the watchmaker behind it. That's its own skill, but being able to have the machine that keeps creating these things one after another, after another, after another is like an insane degree of difficulty. And he's just so incredibly talented as a, as a business person and as the CEO of a company that uh, it's really, it's on another level and it allows him to, to just do a lot of things that, that nobody else would be able to do. And I think we all take it for granted because it comes off as just like, oh, Max, he's this, you know, good looking, likable guy and he's always doing cool stuff and it's fun to look at the cool stuff, but to like, just take a step back and see what he's actually doing is like mind boggling. Yeah, I agree. And I'd like to add something to that, which is, you know, We've talked about finishing. We've talked about, you know, the hand finishing and, you know, how you can finish uh, watches to an nth degree. But Max isn't a watchmaker, you know, and he's managed to find a way to sell these also very expensive pieces without having to rely on this, um, that typical story of independence where you've got, you know, that whole romantic image of one person, although it never is now, yeah. one person sitting at a bench like polishing a bridge, right? That's yeah. not MBNF's story. And yet he's found a way. And I think he's the only one, if you look at the independence, where he isn't the watchmaker sitting at the and he's not relying on that story. And he, you know, that brand has formulated a very unique story in, in that yeah. regard. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it turned uh, what could be a weakness into a strength. So then yeah. he has the double strength. He gets to be able to make the really high quality stuff in a story that people buy, but he he gets to be the business genius instead of the watchmaker. So now you have great watchmakers and great business people 
and it's all comes together to to create a real juggernaut of a thing. So I'm I'm so happy that they they are having the success that they're having because it's very well deserved. Yeah, certainly and, uh, a certainly very rare, rare personality to yeah. be. And also just done it the right way. Done it the yeah. right way. Really respectful of customers. Their service is great. He's always been like, you know, we've had hours and hours and hours of conversations, him and I, traveling across the world of just, you know, the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things and how to really deal with collectors. And, um, and he's just always been right. He's, he's always like on the right side of all of it. He knows what it means to have somebody spend their money on one of his creations. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's huge. I mean, even to the point that like, we made it, we made it a point very early on to always recognize people who bought their watches off the secondary market, um, as totally valid. So now if you, he has like the, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name. What's the thing where you can you can register your watch? Tribe. The tribe. The tribe. Right. So the tribe. The tribe doesn't discriminate against you if you bought your watch from me or you bought your watch, mm. uh, you know, yesterday from Westheim or something. Like you can still register it. You're still part of the tribe, and it's, you don't get like a red flag next to your name of like, uh oh, this guy paid thirty percent off from TikToking. Like, no, you bought a watch. You still spent. $70,000 on an MBNF. Like you're a very extremely valued MBNF customer. And so uh, like even little things like that are just so smart, I think. Um, and, and they're just like the right way to be. It's just, it's just like, you know, it's the way that we wish everybody would be. Yeah. And there's that recent time where, um, you know, when watch brands are now absolutely milking it disgustingly by basically knowing you want the piece and getting you to basically bundle all their stock they can't move. Right, right, you know, right. Max actually runs a lottery for that mad piece, you know, yeah. which is a very affordable piece. You know, most people could afford that. Right. Yeah. And he's like trying to make it fair. Like, I think he's I don't know if he's the first to do that, but it's the first that I'm aware to do that. Right. Yeah. And, I, and he I think brands he do really not cares. appreciate like that brand appeal, that brand that branding because he did that action, how people feel about that brand now, you know, uh, certainly how I feel about that brand. That came across that way. Yeah. I mean, anyway, that's, uh, you guys should have Max on and, and uh, he, he'll be a good interview. And I don't want to, I don't want to spend the whole time stroking Max because he's <laughs> enough of it, but he does deserve a lot of it. And uh, I've, I've always really enjoyed, um, you know, it was, it was, I learned a lot from Max. For and sure. I, I uh, he, people underestimate him, I think, even though he's very highly rated, but I think people still don't know how just capable that he is. For sure. For sure. Um, before we move on to the reversal round, I want to ask um, basically like two questions, which is first, where do you intend on taking, you know, TikToking um, to in the future? Because it started off as a blog, you turned it into kind of, you know, sales model in 2015. And where do you intend to, to bring that like in, in the future? I have no idea. Um, I, I just kind of like, luckily it turned into a really successful thing. I, I used to really grind on it. I was saying before this interview started, I made, um, I made you guys wake up early because I, I, I pop out of the office. I'm like, uh, I'm really protective of my time now. I used to grind in the mornings and the nights and then I've got every deal, got to get right back on every email and whatever. Mm. And now I'm just like a little bit more chill about it. 
I've got my young family and I, I really prioritize time with them. And so I'm just a little less, um, uh, less, less accelerator, uh, mm. than, than usually on stuff. Luckily, I, I just feel blessed to have a business where I can, that I'm good at. I, I have knowledge and skills built up over 20 years mm. and I, um, you know, can, can make a living and kind of work my own time at my own pace. And it's, it's a pretty great gig. Um, on the other hand, um, I get bored sometimes. I'm like, I'm, I really would love to do something huge. And, you know, I have that ambitious part of me also. So those are always uh, in tension with each other. And I do think that there's some sort of like terminal end to this business at some point. I don't think it'll be next year. I don't even think it'll be in five years, but it could be in 10, it could be in 20, it could be in 30. At mm-hmm. some point, there's no need for me necessarily to exist in this capacity in this business. Um, just because, you know, like I said, the world gets smaller and as, as the world, you know, as, as there's less friction, you don't need a market maker as much uh, and the margins will just get driven down and whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if somebody wants to hire me and pay me a ton of money to do not that much work, I'm open to it. <laughs> but instead, I, I've, I've kind of made this sort of dream job for myself. So I'm going to milk it as long mm-hmm. as I can. Do, do you, we spoke to Silas from Collected Man and he was talking about the innovative inevitability of brands actively participating into the secondary market where it's such a way more official thing. Is that what you see as well? And how do you think brands will approach that? No, I don't. I actually gave an interview to the New York Times on this um, when a lot of these brands were making these sort of like pre-owned sites and stuff like that, which I I think is good. I'm glad that they do it and it, it works well for them and they sell stuff well, but but they can't really, there, there's a couple things that make it really challenging for a brand. Um, one of which is that I, I do a lot of my business in trades, you know? So a lot of it is mm. um, somebody's got an Urwork and wants an MBNF or, or much even more oftenly, they've got, you know, a bunch of Rolexes and Paddocks and Longas and this, that, and the other. And they just finally found the independence and they want to get into independence in some way. And they sort of want to trade like a poo-poo platter of these other things for Grubel 4C or something like that. Um, and the brands really aren't well equipped to deal with that. Um, also, it happens to be right now that most independent watches sell very strong on uh, the resale market. But it wasn't that way a few years ago. And it might not be that way in the future. And it's much more difficult for this model to work at all for a brand if they need to sell the thing at 50% off the retail or something like that in order for the market to work. So they're, they're not in a position to be able to do that and kind of maintain the optics of their brand. Um, and lastly, it's just, it's a very specific skill. Like there's not, I happen to be really good at this job and it takes a lot of a lot of, there's several different skills involved. There's like being able to buy stuff, being able to sell stuff, being able to educate about stuff, mm-hmm. being able to negotiate, um, knowing what to buy and sell. It's, it's like a lot of different things. And most of these brands are not good at almost anything other than making watches. Like the, the main <laughs> criticism of the Swiss watch industry is that they're pretty bad at everything other than the watches that they make. So the fact that the idea that they could also get into like pre-owned buying and selling is crazy to me. <laughs> and Silas, Silas knows that, by the way, he, d- he knows how hard, this is a hard job. It's the, 
not everybody would be good at this, especially in these kinds of watches that definitely don't sell themselves. Um, it's not for everybody, for sure. Hmm. Okay, and my last question is, you know, um, for our listeners who are wondering, you know, uh, what independent they should look into if they were to start in the scene, what are some of your recommendations? I think that they should go on to my site and look back through the watches that I've sold, not the stuff I'm selling, that's whatever. That's just like a cross section of what was available to me right now. But if you look at the stuff I've sold over the last several years, you will see the brands that I think are the brands that they should look at. And if you go back through my YouTube videos, I've covered all of them. Like there's not a brand that I think is good that I haven't covered. So everything's there. And um, I think, you know, it's, uh, I hesitate to go on a list because I know I'm going to leave somebody out, but we've mentioned most of them. It's like, mm. um, I, okay, let me answer this in a more interesting way, actually. So I tend to think of things um, in terms of like periods, like, like art. I like art as well. And art, uh, the art world has, they're really good about like taxonomies and they have, you know, people go to art school and there's art history. You can do like a graduate school. You can go through so many years of school just to learn this sort of stuff. And the watch world doesn't have anywhere near the level of like education or thought put mm -hmm. into it. Um, and so there are things that we can learn from that. And one of the things is that they're very good about seeing sort of things that are happening based on a certain period of time and categorizing them together and then uh, learning about each one in relation to another. So there may be you know, abstract expressionism or something. Mm -hmm. And you may learn about the conditions that were happening in New York and some of the main players of that and the ideas that they were bandying about and that they were playing with in their work. And that'll help you figure out what's occurring when you look at a Rothko on the wall or something like that. Um, so uh, I, I, I try to look at the watch world like that in, in a certain way. And to me, the, what we have just seen from the independence was something like that, something kind of analogous to that. You had the rise of the internet, which allowed these sort of young watchmakers to go out on their own and still be able to reach an audience and create this sort of stuff. Um, and that wasn't really possible before. And then that period is over, in my opinion. Um, doesn't mean that people can't make the stuff. You know, there's always somebody who comes a little bit after the main guys. And sometimes they can be very successful too. But for the most part, the people involved in that scene are the people that I'm the most interested in. Mm -hmm. So that's why you're talking or MBNF, Grubel Forsey, Debethun, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe Vianney Halter, Kari Budeline and Philippe Dufour, uh, all these guys. Um, all that being said, I could be wrong and it could all just be a justification of like, you know, everybody likes the music from when they were in high school. Maybe this is just the stuff that I was into at a certain period of my life. So it sticks in that sort of way. Mm -hmm. um, but so far I've been right. And, oh, F.P. Jorn, Richard Meal, whatever. They're all in this group, right? So to me, that's the group. Uh, doesn't mean that a, that a Reshep Reshepi or something that's come later isn't valid or isn't whatever. He makes great stuff. It's very cool. Um, and I would love to have one also, by the way. 
so send send one over here. But um, but my main focus and the stuff that really gets me going is the stuff from this core group that mm-hmm. I think created this movement basically and made it possible for a Reshep Reshepi to exist. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there you have it. And if you guys um, want to hear more where that came from, um, go watch Steve's video on what one can learn about the watch market from the art market, because I watched that. Um, you should, oh yeah, I forgot I made that one. You should yeah. be paying me. I'm like your biggest, <laughs> oh, what, what are my other favorite videos? Let me just- Biggest fangirl. Um, so, so that I video, it. I love the one where you were talking about downsizing and that's like the number one, like collecting philosophy where, you know, it's totally fine trading five, six, seven watches for that one or two watch that you will wear. That's another good video. Um, and then another one of my favorites is just something like you do a lot of these random, but really fun things that nobody's like ever will do where I, I remember you like compared three Royal Oaks and you weighed them separately and you talked about <laughs> just how insanely like heavy a platinum one is or a tantalum one is versus like a steel one which you know you're never going to be able to find that information online the auction houses who certain like sell those are never going to weigh the watches and put them yeah. in the catalog but hey like you find them on your channel and like they get to see how much a tantalum perpetual or a platinum perpetual weighs um, so yeah, definitely check his channel out and we'll end the episode with the reverse around where, you know, obviously Steve takes the turn and asks us each question. So if you want to start with that, I don't know if you have any in mind. Okay, cool. So just them. to be fair. And so you guys understand that they didn't tell me about this reverse around until right before we started. So I'm going to just like shoot off the cuff here. And I'm going to ask two non-watch related questions, if you don't mind. So this, this one's to you, is the, and it may be too personal, so don't answer if it is. But what's the deal with that painting behind your head? Oh, that one? Yeah. Um, so it was actually a gift from my friend who went to art school in Rhode Island. And uh, he gifted it to me when we bought this house. We kind of grew up together. Um, I really like it. Oh, thank you. It's like for people that are obviously everybody is listening and not watching, but it's like a still <laughs> life of like a, you know, wine and I can't see what's in the bowl, but something else on a table. It's like after a really good, you know, you can see people just had fun there, some yeah. wine, some food, lemons, um, some soup, empty soup bowls, tablecloth, and it kind yeah. of fades into the dark, darkness. Well, the, the color, the color really fits the room. Yeah. Very classic. Um, I'm, I'm like really into that sort of stuff. Thank you. Right I'll now. tell him, so. I'll tell him you said so. Does um, he still make art? He's a designer now for clothing. He's in London. Um, okay. but, but he, uh, I don't know how, we must've had that for at least six, seven years. It was before I moved to the U S. Um, cool. I'll tell him it's you said cool so. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Uh, so my next my my next question then is is what's the what's the sort of lockdown in Shanghai scene right now? Ah, um, well, it's slowly opening up. So we're recording today on the eighth of June for our listeners, and people probably don't know because I didn't really broadcast it. But I was in Hong Kong 
for Chinese New Year. So from the 24th of January, I was in Hong Kong. And uh, even that period of Hong Kong, Hong Kong was a very unstable time in terms of the, the, the uh, COVID situation. So everything past 6 p.m. was closed. Yeah. So there was no dinner time. And it's, it's crazy because people were moving up their dinner time to four o'clock to have that dinner meal and to have that meeting which I think like how can you force your stomach I don't get it but people Mm. were doing that that was a thing and so the experience was not so great uh, but it was a good chance to see my father who I hadn't seen because of COVID for two years so I, I, I you know I had to make that trip and I came back on the 24th of February and went straight into 21 days of quarantine in the hotel and I had to split it between two hotels Wow. And so that was when Hong Kong was blowing up and I had a very, like, very narrow time window to leave. But if I didn't leave, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And then I got to Shanghai 21 days. And in that 21 days, Shanghai decided to blow up. So when I came out of quarantine of the hotel, my compound where I live then got locked down on that day. So. Oh, I went straight into quarantine, home quarantine, and added together, it was 96 days of quarantine. Are people, so like me, like I would freak out. Are people like freaking out about this or is like morale pretty high or what's Um, the sort of like general feeling? Okay, so I can't say for other people because I didn't see other people, right? (laughs) But for me, it, it was mostly good because you know, for one time, I didn't have to do like lots of meetings. I didn't have to go out. I didn't have to, you know, like I could spend a lot of time on myself. So, yeah. you know, I got, got, you know, very fed. I, and by the way, food was limited. So when I say limited, I mean, we went back to a time where I've never been back to. So there was group buying, right? You couldn't buy stuff. Like I want this stuff. I'm going to buy it. It's going to get delivered. No. Yeah. It was back to group buying where your whole compound is saying, okay, we need eggs. Yeah. And we need like 400 eggs or or a thousand eggs. Right. And that's the only way you're going to get an order into your home. Right. And we were bartering. So let's say I would have salt. Yeah. And I, but I wanted, um, I don't know, grapes. Yeah. So I would barter salt for grapes and I'd say, okay, I have salt. Who needs salt? What do you have? I'll exchange, right? Wow. Cash was nothing. Yeah. No, I mean, cash didn't mean like anything. In- infinity inflation. Yeah, like, I mean, once things opened up and you had that like buying group buying thing, and yeah, cash, obviously you need cash, but there was a period yeah. where, and, there, and also you could see the good side of human nature where you say, I needed this, I need this. Does anybody have this? Yeah. And like, we would give it away and say, you know, there you go, take it. You know, and we, you know, people would do that to help each other out. So it was a very weird experience of how primitive we went to, you know, just quickly yeah. like that. You're talking about Shanghai, which is one of the most modern cities, you know, yeah, transactions, everything, logistics, you know, supply chain, really advanced right. and resorted to that. Um, so it's yeah. super interesting, but that never freaked you out. You never thought that one day, like the eggs just wouldn't come and you guys would all start starving or something. Well, I have to say, yeah. Uh, I think for the poorer people, right? And I say it really directly. Yeah. It's a nightmare. Yeah. Right. But 
for me, I'm very fortunate to be in the position I am. I kind of knew I was always going to be okay because if it ever becomes a group buying thing and becomes a money thing, I'm always going to be in the higher percentiles. Yeah, exactly. You, you know what I mean? It's not MBNF if I'm screwed, like Shanghai's done. You know what I mean? So, right. I, I was never worried on that. But for example, when they closed my compound, you know, the workers that maintained the compound couldn't go home. Right. Oh wow. So they were locked in, but they don't have a house. No. Jeez. So they're like they were finding any place to, you know, any room anywhere to try and stay and. You know, we were like offering them to, you know, so they could use our shower, you know, stuff like this. You know, so that's the kind of people that really uh, suffered. And also, you can see the bad side. I mean, you know, as I told you, there's bartering. There's always yeah. profiteering as well. Yeah, of course. You know, like ridiculous. You saw things skyrocket that you think are people that desperate to buy like croissants. I remember my wife telling me like. This, this croissant is like um, X amount, you know? And I was like, who's going to pay that? Like, I think it was like 60 RMB for a croissant. That, that's about yeah. like, how much is that, Jack? 10 bucks. Like, 10 bucks for one croissant. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, yeah, crazy. Who, who, are you that desperate? And then, so it was a very surreal experience. You do mm -hmm. get somewhat institutionalized. So, yeah. I haven't, yesterday was the first time I actually went into the middle of Shanghai, right? Yeah. And it was weird to see people, <laughs> you know, walking around. Sure. Like yeah. people that you don't see every day because, you know, in your house, you see family and, and that's it, right? Um, luckily for me, I could still walk in my compound. So I was doing 10,000 steps. I know people that were literally in their home, right? Yeah. Could not move. That I think is something excessive like right i'm not sure my experience would have been the same if i couldn't walk outside mm. uh, yeah super so, interesting well thanks yeah. for thanks for telling me i'm interested in stuff like that i think that it's like you know it's weird to end like a luxury podcast and then get into stuff like that mm -hmm. but i think it is important to you know, understand that the world can get dark and weird and weird things happen but also they're not mutually exclusive and we really do want a world where Max Bucer is still making crazy horological machines and Kari Budelainen is still somewhere, you know, filing a bridge and doing whatever. So I, I do think that um, while one seems frivolous when juxtaposed with eggs or something like that, it's, uh, you know, we, the, the ideal world needs everything to exist. Um, and so they, they can't be, neither can be ignored. Yeah, I mean, just to put it, because it is a watch podcast, I'll say that <laughs> I didn't wear a watch through that whole period because there was no need to wear a watch right at home. Yeah. Like I just, there's no need. The only thing I was wearing was my Apple watch and that's for my steps. Yeah. But I was always looking at watches still, you know, I was still reading about it. I was looking at auction results, you know, so <laughs> juxtaposed yeah. to like trying to find food to eat. I was yeah. still which is probably some of the indie boom by the way is people just got locked in their houses and always the the barrier to the indie stuff is it's just harder to find information but when you're there and you can just google as deep down as you want to go you know at some point at the end of it you get to this kind of cool stuff at the bottom so I think that's some of the reason why people found this yeah and everyone's accessible 
because no yeah. one's like back at work so it's like what are you doing yeah, yeah. what are you doing like can you tell me the information on this you know everybody's accessible yeah totally mm-hmm. interesting thanks well that's the end of the podcast steve thank you so much for ch- chilling with us and we hope that you had fun um and it was really fun i maybe it wasn't the maldives but it was fun it's very hot <laughs> in my office that's the closest yeah. i got i'm, I'm sure oh, long long so is really here. jealous that she's not in the Maldives. <laughs> she missed this yeah. podcast. Well, we'll have to do another one when she's back. Yeah. yeah. No. Sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, and and for those who uh, enjoyed this episode, please um, give us a good comment. And um, you can find Steve at his Instagram, which is um, Steve Halleck, or at TikToking.com or TikToking on YouTube. So um, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to the Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.